Hi, Steve here. Thanks for dropping by. I want to tell you a story. In 1975, while I was a student at Cal Berkeley, I decided to write a book about the folklore of Contra Costa, the county I lived in. Contra Costa lies on the east side of the Berkeley Hills. It's a cow patty-shaped county that includes a handful of decent-sized towns, a few notable geographical highlights like Mount Diablo and the Sacramento River Slough, quite a bit of industry, including the Concord Naval Weapons Station, several oil refineries in Martinez, and the adjacent port infrastructure, and miles and miles of nothing. Open, rolling hills that, at the time, were still identified in my Thomas Guide as Spanish land grants. And that was it. I had taken a course in folklore the year before from Professor Alan Dundee's to fulfill a breadth requirement in my major, and I was sucked in. Folklore studies the body of culture that characterizes a group of people and includes oral tradition, things like humor, proverbs, history, genealogy, and stories that are passed from one generation to the next, as well as some physical things like architecture and design elements that are unique to a particular area. I was mostly interested in history and stories. I was a bit of a loner, and I used to spend my weekends in my little yellow VW Beetle driving around the back roads of the county. The more lost I was, the happier I was. I knew that my Thomas Guide, the world's answer to GPS before GPS existed, would get me home. One of the legends I became familiar with was the story of Granny Norton, the White Witch of Nortonville. Granny Norton, her actual name was Sarah Norton, was the midwife in the little coal mining town on the eastern flank of Mount Diablo that bore her husband's name. She was apparently a force to be reckoned with. She sometimes paddled a canoe across the miles-wide Sacramento River so that she could deliver a child. She was one tough woman. She was tough, but she wasn't invincible. In early October 1879, Granny Norton died when she was thrown from her wagon by a panicked horse during a violent lightning storm. She was buried in Rose Hill, a tiny postage stamp of a cemetery that even today serves as the final resting place for many of the miners and their families who lived in Nortonville, Stewartsville, Judsonville, Summersville, and West Hartley, the five coal towns now all gone in eastern Contra Costa. It's a sad place because a large percentage of the people buried there never made it to their teen years. One day, I did a survey of every marked grave in the place. In one corner of the cemetery, an entire family, eight people in all, lie sleeping side by side. On the day that the town gathered at Rose Hill to bury Sarah Norton, a crisp wind was blowing and the sky was clear and cornflower blue as it often is over the California hills. As soon as the service started, though, the sky turned black, lightning crashed about, Thunder rumbled across the grasslands, and the mourners had to run for cover. Three times they tried to get her in the ground, and three times the service was abandoned. Finally, Sarah Norton, who apparently was not a church-going, God-fearing woman, was buried without service and without incident. This woman was powerful. The story doesn't end there, though. Since her death, hundreds of people, have experienced supernatural events at Rose Hill. 
Many have seen floating balls of light and ghostly images, while others have been buffeted by winds that don't move the grass or the trees. In fact, since the early 1960s, more than 200 exorcisms have been performed in the cemetery, all of them trying to get Sarah Norton to calm down. Apparently, she's not interested. As Rose Hill, coal miners, cranky ghosts, and ghost towns became more and more real to me, I began to haunt libraries and archives for information. I spent hours in the vault of the main Contra Costa County Library, poring over land grants, title deeds, crumbling newspapers, and emotion-filled letters between friends and lovers. I made notes, and those notes became my tour guides every weekend as I went off in search of whatever historical place or artifact was on my list that day. One afternoon, while cruising down a country road way out in the eastern fringes of the county, I came across a set of rusted iron gates, very ornate, with an intriguing sign, Byron Hot Springs Resort. Turning in past the gates, I drove down a poplar-lined road that wound past decaying, tilting buildings, a dry lake bed filled with desiccated fish, and a messy central square dotted with ragged palm trees and punctuated with a tilting gazebo in its center. Behind an overgrown hedge, there was a white Victorian home, badly in need of paint, peeling in the hot California sun. And beyond the house, there was a four-story red brick building. From a broken window on the top floor, a peacock called. So I turned off the engine, got out, and walked around. As I explored, I found the ruins of mud baths, mineral springs, and bathing pools. I found the Mead Memorial, a magnificent building that at one time I later discovered was the only structure in the world that had simultaneously housed both ice-cold and boiling hot natural springs, one at each end of the building. Sadly, it's gone now. It was burned in the early 1980s as part of a firefighting exercise. I didn't know what I had found, but I did know this. It was special. So the following week, I went back to the library and began to do research. I returned to the resort time after time, weekend after weekend, taking pictures and comparing what I had learned to what was still there. And what I learned was amazing. Yes, Byron was a resort, but it was much, much more than that. In 1986, I published a feature article in a local magazine about Byron Hot Springs. It included lots of the photographs I had taken during my visits to the place. The story got good reviews. Most people in the area, I later found out, knew nothing about it. A few weeks after the article was published, I got a phone call. The call was from Bob Morton, who turned out to be the great-grandson of the founder of Byron Hot Springs. Not only did he have an extensive photo collection from his childhood, as it happened he spent a lot of time at Byron, but boy did he have stories to tell. We became good friends, and he contributed greatly to the book I eventually wrote about the place, A Matter of Last Resort. Since then, I've collected information about Byron Hot Springs in dribbles and spurts. My friend Dennis McCooey accompanied me on numerous trips to the grounds, during which we mapped, photographed, and explored every square foot of the place. Years later, I made pilgrimages to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., visits that quite literally yielded pallets 
of declassified documents about the resort's role during World War II. A few weeks ago, I called Bob Morton and asked him if he'd join me on a podcast to help me tell the story of Byron. He agreed. So in this episode, I'm going to tell you about the history of the place, and Bob will tell you what it was like to grow up there. I hope you enjoy it. The story begins in 1863 when two men from Saline, Michigan, John Nelson Risden and his nephew, Louis Risden Mead, arrive in Northern California to buy the land that the hot springs were on. They wanted to sell the salt that accumulated around the various springs on the land, but after a while they realized that the springs didn't produce enough salt to make a profit. So instead, they decided to open a spa. They built a structure over one of the springs, a very smelly sulfur spring, and began to advertise the merits of its health-giving waters. People began to show up in large numbers to drink the water. Then, in the late 1880s, as their popularity grew, they built a hotel that, from the pictures anyway, looks like a 19th century game lodge in Kenya's Masai Mara, the kind of place where you might find Hemingway sitting on the porch. It had a wide open look to it and a wraparound porch with a view onto a central courtyard, and it housed guests until 1901 when it burned to the ground. Balloon framing was most likely the reason the buildings were totally and rapidly lost. That's my friend Pete Mulvihill. You've heard him in other episodes. He's a fire protection engineer. Balloon framing was used in the late 19th and early to mid 20th century because it was structurally strong. It adequately supported multiple story buildings. The downside to it was that you had a open chaseway all the way from the basement up to your attic. And if you had a basement fire, it rapidly could spread up through these enclosed channels to the attic, spread throughout the attic. The building is on fire below and above you. The occupied spaces don't realize the building is in danger in the initial stages of the fire. By the time people realize the building's on fire, it's quite probably lost. Undaunted, they built a second hotel, this one designed by the Reed Brothers architectural firm. And this is where Bob Morton's story begins. My name is Bob Morton and I live in Walnut Creek, California. Byron Hot Springs came through my grandmother's side, the Mead side, and she ended up marrying James Reed, who designed that hotel. He also designed the um, Hotel Del Coronado and Grand Lake Theater in Oakland. My great-grandfather, Louis Risden, his first wife died, and May Reed, years later, married Louis Risden Mead. It was a very interesting phenomenon because my grandmother, my mother's mother, became the stepmother of May Reed. <laughs> the difference in their ages was huge. May Reed never had any children, and my mother was like her child. They were extremely close. Okay, so just to be clear, Louis Risden Mead was the founder of the original resort. Remember, he came with his uncle from Michigan in 1863 to buy the land in the first place. Louis Risden Mead then married May, who became Bob's grandmother and was the matriarch of Byron Hot Springs. In 1912, the second hotel went up in flames, just like its predecessor, and most likely for similar reasons. Scattered around the West, there were isolated remote resorts where people could get away from the big city and get out, relax, 
unwind, uh, soak in a hot spring, kind of let your city woes drift away. As a result, most of them were in areas that were not served by a uh, fire department of any type. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you might find uh, volunteer fire departments in smaller towns and communities, but they weren't out uh, in the area where these resorts were being built. So the resorts had to be self-reliant. Oftentimes they had little hand pumps, hose carts that worked off of their small water systems uh, that they had installed. Byron Hot Springs obviously had artesian wells. They had pools that they could pump from. In addition to hand pumps, they would keep water buckets around so that the buckets didn't drift away and get used by the gardener. They were uh, actually a special design. They had a rounded bottom so they could not stand up on their own, especially when they were filled with water. They were relying on the staff of the resort to deal with any problems. By 1914, a third hotel was built on the same site. The new building, which still stands on the resort property, isn't anywhere near as fancy as the two that burned, but it offered modern conveniences that the first two did not, although running water in the guest rooms wasn't one of them. This wasn't enough to deter people from staying there, though, and between the hotel and the bungalows, the resort could now accommodate 250 guests. Louis Risden Mead died two years later in 1916. Not long after his death, May married James Reed, the architect who designed the second hotel. As a memorial to her late husband, May commissioned Reed to build a monument in his memory. It was called the Mead Memorial. It was all marble inside, very fancy. And at one end there was a spring and you could go down these stairs and the spring was there and they had cups and you could get the water out. And at one end the spring was hot water and you go down to the other end and it was all cold. Same building. As we noted earlier, as it turned out, the Mead Memorial was the only building in the world that simultaneously housed a hot and cold spring. It was completed in 1918 and was the most impressive structure at the resort. It was a long, narrow, brightly lit building of Alaskan marble and was decorated with carvings and paintings and inlay. That building is no longer there, which is a shame. It was quite an unusual building, and she built it in memory of her first husband. I can still picture that building. So can I. When I first started exploring the grounds of the resort, it was still there, and it was breathtaking, even after all those years. But this is the building I referred to earlier that was chosen to be burned for a firefighting exercise. Just terrible. Today, the only thing that remains is the stonework around the original springs. I was born in 32, and the resort virtually closed on December 7, 1941. I would say in that period of time, I was probably there 25 times. Quite an interesting trip to get there. My grandmother had a great big old Packard. And we'd drive down to the ferry building and we'd take the ferry boat because the Bay Bridge wasn't open. They were still building it. So we would take the ferry across to Oakland and we would drive through Oakland out MacArthur Avenue and no freeways, all two lane roads. And we'd drive out through Livermore and we'd get over near Tracy and there was a, a road heading north that would take you to Byron Hot Springs. And I would say it would, as a crow flies from San Francisco to Byron Hot Springs, was probably between 40 miles and 50 at the very most. But yet it would take several hours to get there by car. 
Guests who arrived by coach or who took the train to Byron would be met by a horse and buggy or a stage or later by motor car to be driven to the resort. The trip was pretty unremarkable. The road wound through rolling treeless hills covered with grass. There wasn't much to it. It was kind of arid, hot and dry. And then you would get into Byron Hot Springs and it was like you entered another world. As guests made their way up the main road to the actual resort, they realized what they were in for. They had these lush gardens. The gardens up there were spectacular. Huge palm trees, but they had huge trunks and lush green lawn, golf course. Along the way, they passed a small lake behind which were the Mead Memorial, the mud bath house, and the gas plunge, which was a large swimming pool. I spent a lot of time in that swimming pool. It was completely fed by the hot spring and gas bubbles continually coming up, popping at the surface of the water. And it was a very murky, you couldn't see the bottom of the pool. It was very murky. After checking in, guests were shown to their rooms and taken on a tour to familiarize them with all of the resort's services. Each guest was personally counseled by the resort's medical staff and received a summary of each spring's curative powers. There were 15 springs at the resort reserved for medicinal drinking water and five others that fed the swimming pool and mud baths. The Byron Hot Springs Company published a brochure that listed the chemical contents of each spring, as well as their temperatures and curative abilities. Many visitors came to Byron on the recommendation of their doctors, who prescribed the spring for relief from gout, rheumatism, gastritis, and indigestion. Whether they actually worked is up for debate but a postcard sent from the resort in the early 20th century tells the story pretty well. The English is a little gnarly, but it says, the sender of this postcard certainly enjoyed the, quote, internal waters. She writes, people, not one here I ever saw before, but we all seem to be friends and have lots of funs at the springs in the morning. One man told me this morning, I must not drink so hard and brought back a pitcher of mineral water and they laughed at me, rushing to the bathroom, feeling better. <laughs> That's in a postcard. Let's face it, the benefits of soaking in a hot spring are as much psychological as they are organic. Epsom salts and other naturally occurring chemicals in the waters of Byron's springs work as laxatives and antacids, so there would be some perceived benefit from drinking them. Heat would help with rheumatism and arthritis, but whether it comes from a heating pad, a bathtub, a mud bath, or a hot spring is immaterial. It works. But it wasn't just the hot springs, plopping mud baths, and effervescent, naturally carbonated swimming pools that drew people to Byron. It was the relaxation, the opportunity to walk the lavishly landscaped grounds, to be pampered in a classy hotel that completed the package. The place had a decadence to it and people paid handsomely for the experience, in today's dollars, well over $200 a night. And let's face it, it wasn't the easiest place to get to. I mean, you really had to want to go to Byron Hot Springs. It wasn't a place people went and spent the night with a hot date and then left in the morning. <laughs> no, probably not. But for those who did elect to stay there, one of the things they could look forward to was a comfortable place to stay and meals they wouldn't soon forget. We would take our meals in the hotel dining room. We'd go in there, it would be my mom, my dad, and May Reed, 
she owned the place, so she would be greeted by everybody in there. You know, the food was wonderful, but because she was so popular with all the guests, and I was never able to leave the table until she left, I spent a lot of very anxious moments in that dining room wanting to get out of there. A famous restaurateur named Tate, he was a big deal in San Francisco, very big deal. He owned a couple of restaurants and he was very much a socialite and he took over beverage service up there. And that was one of the attractions because people in San Francisco loved that guy. My dad and I, we, we would go to breakfast over at the hotel, usually on our own. Mr. Vice President. On December 7th, 1941. Mr. Speaker. We were walking down the hallway. Members of the Senate. And there wasn't anybody around the House of Representatives. And we got down to the lobby area, which was quite elegant. Yesterday. And all these people were sitting around a radio, the old-fashioned Philco radios that sat about four feet high. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. That day, of course, was the day Pearl Harbor was bombed. Immediately after President Roosevelt gave his speech, Congress declared war and the United States formally entered World War II. Now, Henry Stimson, President Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of War, had a problem. It was January 1942. World War II was two and a half years old. Pearl Harbor had been hit by the Japanese a year before. Stimson sent a letter to the Secretary of the Navy stating his concern that shiploads of German and Japanese prisoners of war were secretly being transported to the United States. He wasn't concerned that they were being brought to the U.S. That was part of the plan. He was concerned because there was no place to put them. The letter was simple and straightforward. It asked that resources be allocated to construct two interrogation facilities, one on the west coast of the country another in the east. The Secretary of the Navy sent teams to both coasts to identify locations where prisoners of war could be safely housed. They eventually selected Fort Hunt for their east coast location. At the time, it was a Civilian Conservation Corps facility about 17 miles from Washington, D.C. Originally part of George Washington's Mount Vernon estate, it was on National Park Service land, so Army and Navy officials had to agree to return it to the Interior Department substantially unaltered when the war ended. By now, you've probably guessed where they decided to put the West Coast facility. That's right, the Byron Hot Springs Resort became Camp Tracy, an interrogation center for Japanese and German soldiers. The government got in touch with me and said, we're going to take it for the duration. Here's a check for good faith money, and we're going to send you this much every month. Remember how the military was forced to agree that they would return Fort Hunt substantially unaltered when the war ended? Well, Byron was private property, so they were under no such agreement. When they gave it back to her, it was really trash. It was a mess. It would never be the same. The National Archives in Washington has metal detectors, guards that don't smile, and rules that can't be broken. Researchers have to register and carry an identification card. Inside, where the documents are kept, the building looks like the inside of a World War II Navy ship. 
The metal walls are covered with thick yellowed paint and are bolted together like a ship's hull. The National Archives stores the nation's important documents. Other than a few specific items, such as a number three pencil, pens are not allowed, and laptop computers or tablets, personal effects are not allowed in the research room. Even scraps of note paper have to be approved. Once approved, they're stamped to identify them as personal property. Documents are stored in cardboard archive boxes, which are retrieved on request. They're stored somewhere deep in the building or in other facilities scattered around Washington. Boxes are delivered to the researcher, stacked on a pallet jack. This was my experience when I went to the archives to look for information related to Byron. I was told that the likelihood of finding much was pretty low, but that I should wait for my name to be called in that waiting area over there. About 45 minutes later, I heard someone calling my name. Turning around, I found a man with a pallet jack who apologized for the fact that there was so little available about Camp Tracy. On the pallet jack were 36 document boxes. He left them with me. I copied every page in every box, and I struck gold. The papers in the boxes are musty and discolored like paper dipped in tea. They give off that smell of established libraries of dust and tannin. The writing on most of them is blurry because the ink has crept through the fibers. Top secret and confidential and eyes only are stamped in bold red sans serif letters all over the pages. Never marked as declassified, these pages are strange to look at. And little things add to that strangeness. Skinny little paper clips that look nothing like the ones we use today. Binders that work differently. Narrow little staples that are rusted and crumbling. Drawings and doodles by bored people at all levels of the military. Even generals drew random little sketches. The characters on the pages, stamped by government-issue Underwood typewriters, look more real, more credible than the flawless black-and-white pages that spew from today's laser printers. There are marks of people on these pages. The folders in the boxes all have names. POWs at Camp Tracy, Project Audacious, high-ranking German officers at Camp Tracy, there are maps, blueprints, drawings of airplanes, ships, military installations, and countless interrogation reports. Most of the soldiers who found themselves at Byron were farmhands, laborers, and day workers who knew nothing about the military. They were conscripts, innocents that were made evil by the myth of the times. In many cases, their interrogations reveal that they didn't even know what unit they were attached to. I'm holding here the interrogation report of a young, marginally educated German farm boy. He has no idea what regiment or division or detachment he was with, and he clearly has no concept of the overall mission. He doesn't know the distance from his farm to the nearest town. In fact, he doesn't even know the town's name. He tells the interrogators that he was sent to Poland, given a farm labor furlough, and then sent to France. Afterward, he returned to Germany for yet another farm furlough, and then he went to Russia for a year where he was wounded. He returned to Germany for recuperation, after which he was attached to a group of replacement troops. With them, he was sent to Italy by train, then on to Bizerta in North Africa, due south of Sardinia, by a very large airplane that carried 20 soldiers. 
There he was captured by English troops, and now he sat in a former guest room at the Byron Hot Springs Resort in Northern California, being interrogated by American Naval and Army Intelligence personnel. What could have possibly been going through this young man's head? Back home, he had a young wife in Reichenwalder who was worried about him and had no idea where he was or that he had even been captured. Did he wonder whether he would ever see her again? What did he think when the blindfold came off? Now, it's important to keep in mind that the detainees at Camp Tracy were either German or Japanese. They were well cared for at the camp. In fact, many of the resort's recreation areas were available to them, although they were extensively bugged with hidden microphones. When the war ended in, what, 45? Oh, I'd say maybe a month went by, and my grandmother got a phone call. They said, well, this is Reed, you can have Byron back. We're all done. And so we drove up there, and the place was a mess. We had no idea at this point what had gone on there. And we went over to one of the guys, and he took us up to the second floor. They had taken every hotel room, and they had built a wall within a wall. And then they took the interior of that new wall and made it look just like the original. So they would take prisoner A and put him in that room with prisoner B and listen to everything they said to each other. And and then they would take prisoner C and put him with prisoner A and, you know, they'd move around and conversations obviously would vary. And then downstairs, very bottom floor, underneath the main hotel was the operations room. And that's where they did all the eavesdropping and all that, I guess. I don't know. That's exactly what they did. In a hallway behind the dining room, near the kitchen in the hotel, there was a heavily guarded door conspicuously labeled supplies. Behind that door, recorders connected to the camp's hidden microphones and radio and telegraph machines operated around the clock, bringing questions for interrogators from experts throughout the military. On August 13, 1945, as the war wound down, orders were received from Washington to decommission the Byron Interrogation Center. The camp accomplished its mission. During the two and a half years that it operated, 252 German and 3,234 Japanese prisoners were interrogated, yielding 6,068 total interrogations, 883 filed reports, and 397 detailed sketches and drawings. Unfortunately, the days of Byron Hot Springs had come to a close. As Bob Morton remembers, the military gutted the place. And on top of that, the water table dropped, leaving the springs dry. So not only was the beauty of the place destroyed, the reason to go there in the first place literally evaporated. For three years, the property lay abandoned until 1948, when the Greek Orthodox Church purchased it for $105,000 with the intent of converting it to a home for the elderly. They operated their facility off and on for 12 years, adding improvements here and there. In the 1950s, Contra Costa County considered purchasing the property to use as a polio therapy center, but their plans never materialized. In 1959, the church sold the land to a business consortium that intended to convert it into a first-class country club, reminiscent of its original purpose. Over the years, Byron Hot Springs passed through a chain of would-be developers, none of whom had much success. Today, it's in the hands of the latest of a string of people who dream about bringing back the glory days of a place 
that made its guests forget that there was a loud, chaotic world beyond the little oasis that was the Byron Hot Springs Resort, a world that didn't always make sense. At Byron, even for a few days, everything made sense. Thanks to my friends Bob Morton and Pete Mulvihill. I hope you enjoyed the story. We'll see you in the next episode. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.